0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Russell Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Russell Moore.
1: This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. We are coming up on Juneteenth, a relatively new uh, federal holiday, but not a new celebration in the United States of America. And I wanted to talk about that today with Justin Gibney, who is the co-founder of the AND Campaign. Many of you are familiar with the AND Campaign. And if you're not, check it out. He's an attorney and a political strategist. He lives in Atlanta. And he's also the producer of How I Got Over a five-part series that examines the history of seven historic Black denominations and highlights major Black Christian leaders. And that's something I want to talk about uh, today. Justin Gibbony, welcome to the show. Hey, Dr. Moore. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. You know, there are some people, I think, who don't quite know what Juneteenth is. They know it's a holiday now, but they don't know actually what they're celebrating. How would you explain it? to folks?
2: I would call it Independence Day, Um, uh, maybe a second Independence Day. Uh, Mm. Basically, what happened was after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, while some slaves were told of their freedom in Texas, they were not told. Uh, Some say it's because there was a lack of Union soldiers that could tell them what was going on, but uh, they were not told until about two and a half years later that they were actually free. And so they didn't know, but marking that Juneteenth is basically when Uh, Slaves in Texas were told that they had been emancipated. And
1: what do you think led to the recognition this long later in terms of a a federal holiday where where, uh, you're seeing
2: Juneteenth uh, celebrated, not just in the black community, but beyond? Initially, it was very big in in Texas, obviously in places like, um, I believe, Oklahoma and Louisiana. And then it became kind of a bad thing to celebrate it, almost as if it was taking something away from Fourth of July. Mm. Me, myself, is interesting because I, the only thing I knew was celebrating it. I'm, I'm from Denver, Colorado, but oddly enough, we had a pretty big Juneteenth celebration from as early as I can remember. So it's something that I always celebrated. It was interesting when I came to the South to see that people didn't really celebrate it as much, at least when I was in Tennessee and Georgia. And then it became something big. And I think it goes along with, a lot of the racial issues we've had uh, as of late, whether it be uh, issues with um, racial violence and things of that nature, people became a lot more conscious of those issues and the history. And I think p- people just started pushing to bring that history into the conversation. And I'm glad they did. I'm glad there was pressure on folks to and, and state legislatures and such to um, make it a, a holiday. And I think it's a positive.
1: I saw one state legislator in, I believe, Texas, don't hold me to that, but I think it was Texas, uh, debating the recognition of Juneteenth, who said, we we shouldn't do that because it's a woke holiday. And of course, we're we're in this time right now where almost uh, everything is somehow connected to what somebody's going to call wokeness why are we in this moment?
2: <laughs> how, how did we get here? It's a shame that, you know, we want to make certain things insignificant. How could a people who had been enslaved for hundreds of years and they get their freedom, how could we see that as as insignificant? I think that's unfortunate. But if I had to guess, the reason is uh, because of an idol we have. And I think we've made an idol out of a romanticized understanding of American history. Mm. And so what, Juneteenth does is it reminds us of slavery. It reminds us of that sin. And people don't want to bring that back up. We'd rather just look at the things that kind of glorify America. But I'm a true believer. You know, I celebrate the fourth, always have. Mm -hmm. Um, I celebrate Juneteenth again, like I said, always have. And so I think it's one way of recognizing the things America has gotten right and also the things that America has gotten wrong. Unfortunately, because of some of our narratives, especially on the right, We don't want to look at those things that it's gotten wrong, almost as if they would disappear or people wouldn't pay attention to them if we tried to ignore it.
1: And yet it's really amazing how even with Juneteenth, you have both the historic failures of the United States, moral failures, and also the ideals. These are Americans who are being freed from uh, slavery uh, this these are uh, this is in an American state these are American ideals so they fit together and yet it seems like right now as you said there's a sense of a wanting to either romanticize everything about the history of the country or to act as though everything uh, there, there were no real ideals behind anything mm-hmm. in this country and Sometimes these are even
2: self-contradictory. It's all about narrative. And the fact the historic facts don't really all matter all that much. And so if it supports my narrative at that moment to make the America this great country that has never had any flaws, and that's what I run with. At, if at some point I'm saying it, it went all wrong and we have to go back, I run with that. But if it supports my narrative to put everything on the American system and say that it was awful and has always been awful and hasn't improved, then that's what I do. Mm-hmm. I wish people would take you know, the stance that I think Frederick Douglass took. Mm. Uh, This is somebody who was a a runaway slave, a former slave who who got his freedom later, who basically said he, even he understood the ideas, ideals and how important those ideals were. Uh, He would say to other abolitionists, I will not tear this country apart because even though this country is doing something very wrong, its ideals give us the mechanism to fix it. Mm-hmm. And that is something that we really have to think about. If Frederick Douglass, who had been through all the things that many of us talk about, can see the value of those ideas and the ideals and the mechanism that it gave us and still gives us to fix things, then I think we should be able to see that too while recognizing that we have had to call on those ideas or evoke those ideas to get past some tough times and some very serious transgressions. I wonder if you
1: saw... U.S. Senator Tim Scott, presidential candidate,
2: was on, of all places, The
1: View, and there was a discussion that uh, broke out about whether or not Tim Scott is the exception or whether he is the rule. And he, he tried to make the case that he's not an exception, that uh, things have dramatically changed in the United States when it
2: comes to racial justice and racial progress. How would you evaluate that? Yeah, I, I was just watching that clip and it's an interesting clip and uh, he's brave for, for stepping in, into that one. Uh, but I think he did a fairly good job. One, one thing I would say is the difference. Let me start with the difference I have. I think for me, Senator Scott sometimes underplays the role of systemic injustice. And so I think one way to get at that question would be to say that throughout history, there has been things that kept certain people back mm. and that there's a long way that we have to go. And we need to recognize that we don't need to downplay the fact that we've had some serious issues and still have those issues. And I think sometimes he does that. But what I thought he got at is because of the ideas and and because of, you know, some of the things we're trying to live up to, there has been improvement. And I think to look at American history and not recognize that improvement is a mistake. Now, is he the exception? In a way, he is the exception. Right. Because he's obviously a senator and all those things. But can others reach that? I think so. I mean, it's hard to, you know, it's a a tough question because it's hard to say that a senator in the position that he's in isn't the exception for almost everybody. Right, right. Uh, But are those opportunities there for some? I think, yeah, Uh, unfortunately, more so for people in a certain class. Uh, But I still think that given opportunities and given chances, we need to always be fighting for those. People can make it to that. I think America gives people the opportunity to do that with the help of people who are trying to right certain wrongs.
1: Yeah, I think that's important because there are two, it seems to me, two ways that we could go that both end up in the same place. One of those is to say, well, everything's settled and solved and history works itself out and we're beyond that. We see where that leads there's also a sense of we can never have an expectation of movement at all. That that even, uh, even what appears to be uh, progress is really just another power struggle. It seems to me that leads to the exact same place as the first mistake, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, I think it does lead to it. Again, these are ways, I think both of those are ways of kind of... Um, reduce, you know, we're reducing, that. we're flattening reality. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do is make our argument stronger. So if I care about, and my, a lot of these people may be well-intended, if I really care about race it makes a stronger argument to say we've gone nowhere than to say actually here's some progress we made but we need to go further. If I'm trying to convince someone to start at the place where we really haven't gotten anything done may give me a stronger argument or uh, at least a more provocative argument if that's what people are looking for. But I can't ever say that. You know, I look at people like Fannie Lou Hamer. I look at my grandparents, Mm -hmm. folks in the the civil rights generation, and see all that they fought for, see all the things that, you know, my people have helped build throughout history. And I can't look at that and in good faith say that we haven't made any progress. I mean, when when my grandfather was in in Tennessee, there's no way he could have gotten into Vanderbilt University. And because of the sacrifices he made, I was able to go there. So I don't see how I can look at that and, and say the same. And so, yeah, I think we just need to be intellectually honest. And sometimes that makes for an argument that may be a little harder to make, uh, but we need to, we need to do that because it's important. And the, the truth of the matter is most people on the other side don't believe it when we kind of uh, try to reinforce our arguments in that way anyway.
0: God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture, These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith. Because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
1: You mentioned Fannie Lou Hamer, my fellow Mississippian. And uh, I, I can't help but think about the way, and you, you've talked about this uh, several times before, and including in this this uh, five-part series, How I Got Over, about the centrality of the black church, specifically, in terms of the civil rights movement, in terms of every, uh, every movement uh, preceding it. I wonder, what is the state right now of the black church, in your view?
2: Yeah, I think it's in flux to some extent. Uh, I mean, there is no, let me first say this, there is no, still no stronger institution in the black community, uh, for instance, and, and we note this in the docu-series, there's no institution that has done for, as much for African-Americans in education, not even close as the African-American church, whether it's creating uh, uh, universities and things of that nature, or even you know, a smaller schools or church schools. They've, it's always been there to do that. Uh, it still has, it still does a lot. It's still feeding a lot of people every day, but I think people need to, you know, we need to decide are we going to maintain it as that staple like it has been? Uh, and so there's a lot of strength there, but I think my generation and generations uh, coming behind me too are saying, how do we improve what needs to be improved about the black church, but also try to make sure that it is what it always has been, which is the center of uh, our economics, which is the center of our community. And I think that's important to, to move forward with. You know, folks like Dr. Charlie Dates are, are very serious about that well, as well. And we have those conversations. And, and I, I think while it's in flux in some ways, it's still more powerful than any other institution that we have in our community.
1: I wonder if you would agree with, uh, I was talking a couple of weeks ago with someone who works specifically in apologetics and specifically in black communities. And he said that people aren't paying attention to the rise of atheism in the black community because people think atheist and they think Norway, Sweden. And when they think about uh, African-American life in the United States, they think immediately of the black church and ways that, for instance, uh, religious communities are important in the political uh, structure of the country. But he said that he's encountering, especially among a lot of young black men, the exact same sort of secularization, and in his experience, maybe even a little more than you would find uh, elsewhere. Have you seen that or is this unique to, to this person?
2: I think there is a trend. I mean, you, you run into that a lot more than you did back when I remember growing up. Obviously, everyone was not Christian, mm-hmm. but I think people recognize just the strong role that the black church played. So even if you were unsure, right, even if you were you were saying, I, you know, there's some things I'm not sure about with, with the church, rarely did you go to uh, atheism mm-hmm. because there was something I, I believe there was something about our struggle in the way that we got through that Made it hard to say there wasn't a God, um, and you know you had moments where you had the uh, Black Muslim movements and things like that that came out. Of the, the Black Power movement, in some ways, started some of that, uh, uh, some of the atheism that you, you you might see. But even then, it wasn't a majority, and, and maybe not to where it, it has reached now. So it is an issue that we have to address. I think as you become more secular, uh, as you you know go into secular institutions. That, that's something that's happened. And I think we see it happening, not just with the black church, but a lot of uh, people in a, in a lot of different areas. But I also think as we move forward, uh, people see that failing them as well. And, and so there's an opportunity to reach back in mm-hmm. and evangelize and be, bring people back into the church. Why are you a Christian? I'm a Christian because of what God has done for me. I mean, Jesus, I mean, if I look, I'll see my own life, but just through history, and you look at something like the Exodus narrative and the way, the, the role that it's played in the black church, um, I cannot deny the experience and what God has brought me through. Uh, living a life, you know, growing up in a household with an alcoholic father, seeing him, you know, lean on, on God, lean on Jesus and get, and get through. Those are the type of things that have meant a lot to me. And, and you don't have a black church. You don't, you don't have us overcoming in the way that we did without our faith. In fact, you know, there, there are atheists mm. who have written, who've had to admit that it was the faith of the black church that got, that pulled them through slavery in the way that it, that it did. I mean, it's just an undeniable mm. thing. And so for me, certainly the foundation was laid through my, my grandfather, who was a bishop in the uh, Church of Living God and others. But my own experience uh, with Jesus pulling me through, whether it be racial issues or whether it be issues of my own making Uh, It's just an undeniable uh, experience that I've had and uh, one that I want to share for sure. You mentioned an alcoholic
1: father, and it made me think of the fact that often the places where I see the most confidence in terms of bearing witness to the gospel and the places where I see the most evangelism are with recovering addicts. Mm To, to some form of, of substance. And as I think about it, in almost every case, every church I've ever served, the one who was organizing everybody and reminding everybody we need to be uh, out sharing the gospel, recovering alcoholic or drug addict or something along those lines. Why do you suppose that is?
2: I think it's because they're brought to their knees and made to understand that they can't do it on their own in mm. so many in so many other instances, we can kind of rationalize, well, I did this myself and brought myself out when you're an ad- addicted and you've been addicted for a while and you've tried to overcome it and you can't do it, uh, and then you realize that that my faith can get me through it and you see it get you get you through. It's an undeniable testimony that I think they can see very clearly that sometimes uh, uh, those of us who haven't been through that situation have a harder time saying, you know, uh, that that we are self-reliant in that way. I mean, that we are relying, not self-reliant in that way.
1: I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, uh, Justin, you have co-founded uh, the AND campaign. And of course, what AND uh, means there is that we shouldn't be separating things that are supposed to go together, including the moral order and social justice, both. Don't choose one, both. Uh where do you think that conversation is right now in American life? Are we getting more toward an and, or are we getting more
2: toward an or? You know, I would, I would like to say we're all getting closer to and, but it really depends on who you, who you speak to. I think in the public square, when we look at the Christian witness in general, there's a lot more or than there is. And, Mm -hmm. uh, when I talk to people, they may see the importance of social justice, but may not realize that it's actually the truth and moral order that even allows you to have a social justice that allows you to say, I'm calling you to be just, which means that I'm setting an unconditional standard that we all have to abide by. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes I think we miss that on the other side, people talk about morality. They talk about the truth, but don't necessarily always consider um, the compassion side of it. One thing about the end campaign, Our framework is not something that we made up. It's something that we kind of rearticulated. And so what I see a lot of times is that a lot of Christians catch on to it very quickly because that's what they were thinking. They just needed to hear it articulated. Mm -hmm. Uh, And So there are a lot of people, especially young Christians, as we go to Christian colleges and universities that say, ah, I can engage in social justice and be orthodox. I don't have to give up my biblical values To care about people. I do see folks catching on to that and really appreciating that articulation. But I really want to get you to hear the fact that uh, there's something missing on both sides, and the gospel has the answer for that. And we we need to understand the the brilliance and how it surpasses progressivism and conservatism.
1: I was just uh, not too long ago uh, talking to some congressional staffers, and I had one Democratic. A staffer who came up and kind of whispered and said, I'm a Christian, it's really hard because I'm able to I'm able to really do all the things that that I think uh, I ought to do in my particular area when it comes to sort of public justice, but I can't really talk about the personal aspect of it very much. Yet yeah, I was talking to a Republican staffer who said essentially almost the, the exact reverse of that that uh, he could talk all day long about his personal morality, his personal following of Christ, but he sure couldn't start to apply it to issues of public justice. Uh, for, For both of those people, and I think that reflects a lot of pastors, a lot of leaders, they have a tribe around them where they can talk about one of those things and get applause. But if they talk about the other, they're going to get trouble. How do they? How do they navigate that? Do you think?
2: Well, I don't know that I have anything that makes it easy on them, but I think part of it is just understanding your obligation to do it. Mm. Uh, and if you're around, if you're talking about being around other Christians, then you got to go to the Bible. And so if I'm on, if I'm on the the right, then I got to go to the Book of Amos and say, "What do we mean? We're not supposed to talk about systems." That's exactly what Amos does, right? Mm-hmm. He goes yeah. and says that you are partial, your courts are partial. Well, that the courts, that's the system, right? That, that look at how you're treating the poor and really in a systemic way. And so we have to we have to bring that up. But the other part is when we talking to people on the left, Jesus loved, but Jesus did not coddle. And so Jesus was very upfront about what people had to change within themselves. Uh, we see it in John five, we see it in John eight, you know, sin no more, get up. But don't, you know, you can't, you, you know, he tells he tells a man that you cannot no longer sin. There was something internal, right, that couldn't just be cured through other people. It was inside of you. Um, and I think we just have to have a real conversation with people to say, look, let's look. Historic examples, you know, off, off, are often helpful, um, but we have to be honest with other people and say, let me challenge you, especially if we're, if we're using the Bible for this. Let me challenge you. To to show you where Jesus actually is, very much talking about personal transformation and how that has to come, uh, come along, come along with it. And and the truth of the matter is, we should all know that people are creating systems. So if the system's broken, it's probably likely that it's broken people that created it, and that that kind of goes both ways.
1: How do you know if you're in a system? And I'm not talking about sort of virtually unchangeable systems like the United States of America. Mm-hmm. But if you're in a, a system, maybe it's a workplace, maybe it's a nonprofit, maybe it's a church. How do you know when what you're dealing with is something that just needs to be repaired and and when there's a system that just isn't repairable and something new needs to be created?
2: Wow, that's interesting. I, I think that's a really good question and I think it it depends on the foundation, right? And so mm. there are certain things like like the ideals of America, is the foundation and the principles that we're working with can they be used to make things better? And and are the people that that are running the system open to to hearing that? In a place like America, just like I said with Frederick Douglass, as bad as it was, he saw that he saw through that to the ideals. Mm. Or am I in a situation where? the principles that we're working we're working off of aren't even right so if, even if we call people back to let's get down you know let's get back to what really got us here what are the fundamentals when those fundamentals are gone and people and, and people aren't even striving towards that ideal then sometimes there needs to be a a bigger change a, a bigger something bigger than just a small reform but the other part that i think we have to do in those situations is talk to other people and see what they're, see what they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, you may be in a, let's, I mean, church is a good is a good way to talk about this, right? So I may be in a church where people are getting things wrong just with what the, the Bible says, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so there's not even a commitment to um, tr- a true biblical interpretation. Well, at that point, I might, I might have to go and, and, and there's this time, you know, either something ma- massive has to change or I have to go. But if people can see the principles at times and you and you are able to kind of explain it, even even if it takes time, that may be worth staying and, and seeing through some reform. I don't know if there's a, a a quick way to know exactly when that change comes. I think it comes with a lot of prayer. I think you have to have conversations with others, but it can you know, I can see how it can go wrong either way. You don't want to stay too long in the situations that's bad. But often what I see sometimes, too, is people giving up too quickly Yeah. Uh, instead of taking some type of ownership and saying, hey, it's not only me, it's the people coming up through here after me that need a change. Sometimes we just give up too quickly. And so I think prayer is the number one way to do it. I don't think there's a quick, quick and easy answer, but we really have to look to the principles and how people are uh, abiding by those principles or even attempting to.
1: You know, one of the things that you do, not all of it, but one of the things you do is advocacy. And before you came into the role you're in right now, you were in politics. You were working in Uh, American government. One of the questions I get a lot on college campuses from young Christians, sometimes even from high school age Christians, is how how does a person know if he or she should go into politics? And the reason I think that so many of them are asking this, I mean, I think it's a good question at any time, but particularly right now, I think these young Christians are seeing maybe especially explicitly the ways that politics can absolutely destroy a soul. And they don't want that. So how would you advise somebody to figure out whether or not politics is the way to go or if they should stay away from it?
2: It, A lot of politics is about opportunity. Um, And so sometimes if an opportunity arises and you really think that... um, that you're you're prepared for it, then that's something you can look into. Um, one thing I always say is no one else can tell you to run, so you can't run just because somebody else said it's a good idea. You got to take that long walk and decide for yourself. And so even as people ask me, I say you know I can't answer that for you because I've been wrong. I've told people <laughs> that that race you know I don't know if you can win it and they've won it or I've you know I've told people that they should do it and they they get uh, uh, have a really hard time but i think one is the opportunity in front of you have you take are you passionate about a certain issue and within that passion for uh for making change are there opportunities for you for you to go forward with that and sometimes you just have a really deep passion for something and you can't look away mm. and sometimes there's an issue that you see and you say i've got to do and say something about that now the only Politics isn't the only way to do that. So that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a politician. You could run your uh, local neighborhood organization or you could be somebody who's in um, business who actually now has the influence to have an impact on that or give. And so I think you have to look at the issue that if there's issues that you really care about and the opportunity to pursue it. Now, sometimes the opportunity is not right there in front of you. If you're really serious about running for office, you should be willing to spend the time to, you know, Get to know your community, to maybe work on some campaigns, to work on certain issues, go to city council, understand how things work. And then as time goes on, maybe something arises for you. So I I don't want to give the impression that unless it's obvious that you can win right now, don't do it. You should be willing to spend that time. And if you're willing to spend that time and the opportunity arises and you have a passion, then you should do it because somebody has to. And we can't be afraid to enter into that conversation just because we may get beat up a little bit. Well, anytime any t- anybody changed anything, they took some shots. Mm-hmm. And so if you're willing to take the shots, if you're willing to put some time into it and the opportunity arises, then I say I say go for it if you have that passion. And, and again, you can't look away, mm-hmm. but make sure you're doing it for the right reasons, that it's not about position, it's not about power, it's not about how people look at you, but it really is about those issues and representing people who, you know, wouldn't have the same voice without you.
1: And sometimes it's, n- it's not that at the first, but it becomes it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we've both seen people who started out in, in a political arena uh, one way, but then ambition, uh, th- th- those things start to, to pull them in ways that they can't handle. How did you live through the political system without becoming a hack or without sort of surrendering to whatever it takes ambition.
2: Yeah, my my story is kind of the opposite. Uh, I kind of mm. I kind of mm. went in as a hack, oh, um, and okay. that and, and that doesn't mean that I didn't have any you know passion for things. I wanted to change things, but I yeah. did go in doing it because I I like you know I was a former football player. I liked the competition. I thought it was fun. I, you know, I I enjoy politics and the issues, but I can't say it was for like a faith based reason. Mm-hmm. And so what happened to me is I kind of went in saying, I'll do whatever I I got to do to get to to kind of come up in in the system. And then as my, you know, as, as I was convicted in that, as time went on, I said, you know what, I really have to reconnect my faith to this because it has to mean more. And I'll be honest with you, the reason that happened is during a campaign, we ran against somebody, we were really, really hard on her. And I had a hand in that. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing her after it was over and and her saying, and I said, Oh, you know, good to see you thinking it was, you know, it's all over. We're okay. And she said, well, I'm doing a lot better now that you're, you know, you're off my back. Mm. And I could just almost see tears in her eyes. And I realized this was a person that I just kind of, you know, said anything that needed to be said about to win. Yeah. Uh, and I think that started to change, change me a little bit, but, I, but I do agree with you. Some people come in, I mean, anybody who reads political uh, biographies know that some people come in wanting to do everything the right way. And it takes longer sometimes doing it that way. Or, you know, they're, they're hit so many times that they just change or the money gets to them influences. There are a lot of different ways that can, it can happen and they end up being somebody they never thought they would be. And in a lot of cases, the higher you get up, the more that that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, my story was a little different. Obviously I'm not in high office right now. Um, but I really had to turn the other way away from coming in thinking, "Oh, this is just a game. let's get as much power as we can get
1: well and and that's a temptation now for uh, almost everybody in an era of social media. It, it becomes really difficult to remind yourself that you're interacting with a person, not with just a, a an avatar. And so so isn't that the case that it's just some of those temptations that would have only emerged in very specific contexts before just technologically. Now it's open immediately for everybody and it doesn't seem like that's getting
2: any better. No, I don't think it's getting any better. I mean, it's so easy nowadays because of social media to turn other people into political abstractions, yeah, uh, just kind of pawns on on some type of uh, chessboard instead of understanding that everybody has a testimony, right? And so, I mean, how many times do we see people on social media talk about whole groups of people and really just put them in one box and say they're all the same way and that they ha- all have the same motivations? And it's really hard to do that when you know people. And one thing that I'm thankful for, growing up in, in Denver, Colorado, having a very diverse background, it is harder for me to take a whole group of people and say they're one way because I would have to deny many of the experiences that I've had. I've seen, you know, I've seen kids who had all the money they wanted in the world and their parents didn't pay any attention to them, right? I mean, that I would never trade places with. So I think relationship is missing because we don't really have to interact and relate. We can say whatever we want to say and do it anonymously and not really be held accountable in the same way. And then get patted on the back from our tribe. yeah, And it's really gonna take people to say, no, you know, that's not, we can't treat people in that way. We have to hear them out. And even if we disagree, do we know the good that they're trying to get, that they're trying to get to, even if their conclusion's wrong. And we don't, we just don't take the time to do that and really aren't forced to, to do that in any way, especially with social media. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a
1: Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood.
2: A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post October seventh world.
1: Six thirty a.m. We're, we're in, in in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're and they're going on. Everybody's Everybody's on.
2: on based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November. It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict.
0: When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much.
1: I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there.
2: This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet,
0: you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place.
1: One of the really contentious uh, issues in American life right now and church life, too, is uh, sexuality, gender identity. Do you, think that, do you think that we're at a place where the culture wars around those issues, LGBTQ uh, issues, and the historic witness of the church, are? are we starting to get to a place where we really can do that well, where you can have people in the public space who disagree, but who are able to see each other as human beings and talk to to one another?
2: Or is that getting worse in your view? Ooh, um I see people who are doing it well. I think I see people who are doing it a lot better than I might have said in the mid-90s, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I see Christians who are saying, hey, I maintain my biblical values, but we got this compassion thing really wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but at the same time, I see a lot of cancel culture. Uh, I see I see people saying, yeah, hey, either you say it exactly the way we want to and emphasize what we want to emphasize, whether it's the love or the truth um, or just shut up. Um, and so, I think it's, again, I think it's in flux. Some I, I mean, it could go different ways. I think it's not at the height of cancel culture. I think in some ways you can say some of the things that maybe you couldn't say b- before, but at the same time it's still a lot of people with power and influence who are, who are really trying to silence the the debate Um, who who really make it difficult to go in. You know, we see these at law schools of all places where people are getting shouted down for their opinions on those issues. So I'm hopeful because I do see Christians that are talking about it in a better way that are combining that compassion and conviction. Like you might not have seen before, but we still have a ways to go. Yeah. Um, And, I'm not exactly sure where it's going to turn because it seems like it could, it could go either way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and the shouting down of people at law schools and at other places, survey data show us this, that there is a pull to illiberalism, both on the left and the right. And the younger you go, the more that that's the case where you have people who will say, no, speech that I disagree with is harmful speech and should, should not be allowed to happen. Right. Uh, how do we get around that? I mean, how do, we, how do we encourage a next generation to have the right kind of pluralism in the, in the public mm-hmm. square where we, we disagree, but we don't coerce each other? Without having the kind of uh, pluralism that says, well, everything ultimately is all the same.
2: Yeah. I mean, on your first point, it's interesting because when they talk about young people, I often wonder which young people are talking about. Mm-hmm. Because when I, if you're talking about folks at certain schools in, in higher education, yes, they seem to be very illiberal and, and very comfortable with that. When I talk to some of, you know, the people, the younger people that I know that may not be in college or maybe, you know, going to like a Georgia state or something like that, I don't always see that. So it mm-hmm. is it it is interesting. I don't know how large that group is. And I, I think even if some people fiddle around with it a little bit, they're not as far gone as it may seem as as when we see like folks in those areas. Um, so that so that's that's one that's one way to think about it. But I think the answer at the end of the day is you know civic pluralism uh our friend john anazu you, you know called it confident pluralism mm-hmm. we have to have a real understanding that we live in a pluralistic society people are going to have ideas that we disagree with and they have the right to have ideas that we, that we disagree with and if we're going to change their mind it's not through compulsion we change their mind through persuasion and so i don't need a situation where Christians are given some type of assumption or we're given a leg up or some kind of a competitive advantage on convincing people of what we think is right or wrong. That's not how it should be in in this type of society. But at the same time, I'm confident in what I believe, right? Mm -hmm. And I say, there is a truth. I need to stand up for that truth regardless of what the threats are. Mm -hmm. Uh, Regardless of what may come at me, I need to stand up for that. And what I don't think Christians get in a lot of cases because we don't take that stance, you know, people complain about it, but if one by one people take that stance, I think, I think courage is is something that that really spreads quickly. And when people start taking a stance and standing on it, others, others will follow. Yeah. But even in taking those stances, it's not about the triumphalism, it's not about being strident. It's really about talking to people in a way that you know that. That they know that you love them, and that's why you may have those disagreements. And letting them know, even if we do disagree, I love you, and I'll still do as much as I can to make sure that you're safe, to make sure that you're not um, taken advantage of or, or exploited.
1: How do you,
2: in your own life, stay
1: close to Jesus? Are, are there are there particular spiritual practices that you have found uh, work better for you?
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the disciplines that I try to use and and believe me, I could do I could do better. Um, but I, I do try to every uh night pray for people that I, I have an issue with that say things that I don't mm-hmm. like or people mm-hmm. that I could end up having a a rivalry with. Um, I do try I think that's very important. Um, and not just praying that they agree with me, right. you know, the next time we, <laughs> right. we disagree, but saying I want them to flourish and I want God to work in their lives and where I'm wrong or where I'm being petty, please hold me accountable for that too. Yeah. But I don't know that anything is more than just my church family. Uh my Sunday school family uh keeps me grounded. Uh they keep me motivated uh at times. And and you know how this this can get this back and forth and this dialogue and the way that people come at you can uh be discouraging at times. But I think being in the church that I am, you know, still having saints around that were around during the civil rights movement, it just reminds me uh, that there's people that went through much more than I did. Mm. And and it keeps me going and it keeps me wanting to hold on and and certainly wanting to make sure that I represent them well and represent obviously uh, Jesus well in the public square, which means to me means standing on scripture and, but also making sure that I'm compassionate and trying to understand others. We're
1: coming up on Juneteenth. We're coming up on Fourth of July. We're coming up on on several uh, holidays that mark civic space, not not part of the liturgical calendar, the church calendar of anybody's uh, liturgy. How how do you think the church ought to interact with those sorts of civic observations? Should we? have services that are built around them? Should we acknowledge them? Should we, I mean, there are a lot of, especially when it comes to 4th of July, for a long time, there've been churches that have thought, what do we do <laughs> when it comes to this without, without sort of merging uh, the, the, the sacred with the state? How would you handle that?
2: Yeah, I don't see a problem with acknowledging it. Um, but I, but I think I would stop short of you know uh, you know putting the you know the American flag around the pulpit or something like that. I think we I think we can look and say, in something like Juneteenth, we do see God working. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you ask my elders uh, and and the folks you know um, and the folks who went through those periods, they truly believe that that was God responding to a prayer. This this wasn't you know this wasn't some uh, thing where they thought they accomplished it S- just like somebody who you know had to had to admit that they weren't self reliant they were forced to know that they weren't self reliant and so when you saw those changes you knew that it was God uh, interacting and and and, and engaging uh, and so I think we can recognize that I mean I've given sermons where I mentioned Fourth of July and you can connect it to to, to certain other you know certain things but we want to be careful. That we're not uplifting the country in a way uh in more than it really sh- should be. We want to make sure that we're not romanticizing history. Uh so we can give some of the history. Uh we can be uh uh godly proud of of certain things that we've accomplished, but also willing to say that doesn't, that shouldn't go into a sort of supremacy or or nationalism that is just us realizing how God has worked through us and, and obviously can work through other people. Mm what's, what's something in your life that's life-giving for you right now? Life-giving for me. Um, always my sons. I mean that, yeah. you know, that's another thing that, that just helps me I have th- three young sons and just being a coach for them, uh, being able to coach, uh, kids who who may not have a father in their life and seeing how they respond to a man who's, who's consistent and who, who cares about them, but who's also going to discipline them. I mean, that there's a, a lot that comes from that too. So I, I think, My sons do a lot for me and I got to thank my friend Danny Warfel for this, but I've gotten into pickleball too. Oh, you have. uh, Yeah, that's that's something new for me that I'm starting to uh, really enjoy. How can folks find you if they're interested in following your work? So you can uh, find me on the Church Politics Podcast Um, and so you can get that on iTunes or Spotify. You can also catch the And Campaign uh, on social media at at A-N-D Campaign on Instagram and Twitter and then myself uh, at Justin E. Gibney G I B O N E Y, on Instagram and Twitter as well.
1: All right. Justin Gibbany, co founder of the And Campaign. Thanks for being
2: with us today. Thanks for having me, Dr. Moore. The Russell
0: Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cospert. Hosted by Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azaray Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Grabencourt. Video producer is John Roland. The theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton.
1: Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms. CT equips.